Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. From Ephesians 4, 11 through 25. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speak the truth in love. We will grow to become we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them to the due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must speak of falsehood and speak truthfully. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. It's been wisely observed, I think, that what we measure, we grow. Um, I think here's what that saying means. We pay attention to the things in our life that really matter the most. And those are the things that as we pay attention to them, we make investments in, and those are the areas of our lives that grow. It's easy to make a great many claims that we care about this or we care about that, but at the end of the day, you will pay attention to the things you truly value And those are the things in your life that will actually grow. And so uh, whether it's your teeth, your physical body, your bank account, your job, your house, your car, your career, whatever it is in your life that you hold precious, when we take a good look at the true condition of that thing, the condition of that thing will say a lot about what we really value and how well it's cared for. A couple years ago, I preached about how I went to see my dentist, and he asked me a a sarcastic but gentle question. He said, Dave, um, do you brush your teeth a lot? And he wasn't asking me an actual question. He was making an indictment because, and I was a little offended. I'm, I'm a grown man. Yes, I brush my teeth every day. But I think what my dentist was asking me was, do you know how to, because if you look at your teeth, there is very little indication that they're being brushed at all. I think here's what my dentist was saying. By looking at your teeth, those teeth tell me the real story of how much you value your dental health 
and how well you're caring for your teeth. And I think the, tr- the same could be said for all of us when we look at the true condition of anything in our lives. We're going to see the truth about what we value and how well we care for things. And here's another, maybe this is an oversimplified statement of the second law of thermodynamics, which says that left on its own, everything tends towards maximum entropy or disorder. Here's what I believe, that if anything is left neglected and left alone, it slides into into decay and decline. There is nothing that gets better through neglect. I want you to think about that for a second. There is nothing in life that improves or gets better by neglect. And so what's the difference between things that grow and improve and things that fall into decline and decay? Let me just give you a paradigm I think will help you. I think the key difference between the things that decay and the things that ascend in our lives comes down to this, attention, intention, and action. Let me, let me spell out for you another way because this is starting to sound maybe like a, a business workshop. Attention is this. What will you discern? What do you pay attention to? What are you actually monitoring in your life? And the truth is everyone in this room is paying attention to something. On any given day, you're very aware of the true condition of different parts of your life. And other parts of your life are falling apart and you're not even aware because you actually don't care that much about those parts of your life. What about intention? Now that you've seen the truth about your life, what are you going to decide to do about it? I think this is one of the hardest parts of the whole process. You can see a lot of things, and those things will stay exactly the same unless in your heart a decision is made, I'm going to, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to change. I accept that what I've seen is true, and it's not okay with me, and I decide in my heart, I make or cast an intention to do something differently. And then finally, of course, action. Samuel Johnson, who lived in England in the 1800s, said famously, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. What he meant by that was, it's very easy to want lots of things and intend to do lots of things, but in the end, only what we do matters. Do you remember that riddle I told you? Five birds are sitting on a wire and four of them decide to fly away. How many birds are left? Anyone want to venture a guess? Five birds are sitting on a wire, four of them decide to fly away. How many are left? Well, five are left because deciding to fly away and flying away are two very different things. And so the end of the day, what we decide is not enough. It's what we end up doing that makes a difference in our lives. And so I want to use this as a grid by which we think about how we're going to make some resolutions together as a church for next year. When I preached a series on Ephesians, the text that Dan read for us, I think came out to about four or five sermons. So there's no way I'm going to do justice to the text by expositing every detail. And that's not my intention this morning. But I want to, I want to use this text as a springboard to offer a challenge and an invitation to our church. As we pause and think about next year, I want to invite us to make some resolutions together as a church. If you really think about it, New Year's Day is just an arbitrary demarcation of time, isn't it? 
I mean, yes, there's a great party, but afterwards, isn't there sort of this, this roaring thud of anticlimax? You're like, wow, it's a new year, it's 2014, but really, it feels just like yesterday, which is 2013. It's not like some magic happens and suddenly everything is new. It's just another day. But why do we mark the passage of time like this? Because these boundary markers in our calendars offer us a great opportunity to pause and to really take stock of what's happening in our lives. Because we don't want our lives to be something that just we end up there without paying attention to it. We want our lives to be going somewhere intentionally, to land at a place we wanted to land. And that's why I think times like this are important for us to time out, stop everything, and really pay attention to what's going on in our lives. As you listen to this sermon, I want to ask you, and I'm going to give you some time at the end of each point, to pause for reflection. Everyone should have received a little handout on the way in. Did you guys get one of those? And hopefully you also got a pen. Do you, if you don't have a pen, would you kindly raise your hand and someone will bring you a pen? Okay. All right. I want you to jot down a few things. and You, you can take some sermon notes if you are so inclined, but I want, to use, I want you to use that space for the time of personal reflection and commitment at the end of each point. So here are three uh, resolutions I want to invite you to take with me as a church. The first is this. Let's grow together. Let's grow together. Paul writes in verse 12, at at the end of verse 12 there, that it's God's intention that the church would be built up. God wants the church to grow. And while numerical growth might be a part of that, really I believe that what Paul has in mind, what God has in mind for us is he wants the church to grow spiritually. Now over time, I think all of us will testify, we expect our physical health to decline as we get older. But spiritual health is supposed to work the other way. As we grow older, our spiritual health is actually supposed to increase as time passes. So let, let let me put it this way. If you are less healthy and less alive spiritually today than you were at any time in the past, something's off. There's need for renewal, for revival, for God to move, because if there was ever a time in your life where you felt more spiritually alive, more spiritually healthy than you do today, then something has gone wrong in your life, and God wants to repair that. It is not God's will for us that Christian life should start with a bang and then just be the slow decline to an unexciting landing at the end. That is not the picture of faith that God has for us. It is not God's will that over time our faith should descend and decline. Now, that that may not be an earth-shattering truth, but here's the thing. So many people I know in churches all over the world have grown accustomed to and satisfied with a declining spiritual life. They sort of assume, like marriage, like everything, it's exciting at first, and then it just kind of gets boring every day more and more. Isn't that the way a lot of people think about marriage? Your wedding day is the most... What other day do you walk in a room and everyone stands on their feet and claps just because you walked in? That's going to happen one day for you, the day you get married, and you're like a, a, a movie star. You're doing the whole wave, and like, who are you? But on that day, you get to pretend you're the center of the universe. Then you go on the greatest vacation of your life, and after that, everything is downhill. It's errands and honeydew lists, and you know, that's just how it is, right? But 
I think we have bought into the world's way of thinking that everything starts well and ends poorly. I think the picture that God has for us is that Christian life starts well and gets better, just like good wine or good cheese. As time passes, what we want to see is an increase in our spiritual fervor and our spiritual aliveness. Here's what God's plan is for that happening. It says that he has given us spiritual leaders in the church. There are people God has raised up in the church, people who are leaders here, and the reason he has raised those people up is as a gift to his people to help them grow. The reason that God raises spiritual leaders is so that our faith life wouldn't be on the decline, but over time we would see our faith grow and rise. Leaders are God's gift to equip God's people so that their faith grows. Now, the the mission of the leaders is not simply to build programs and to build an institution. If that's all the leaders of the church do, they have lost sight of their mission. The main mission of church leaders is to build up church people, to call the people of God to continue falling more in love with God, to grow in their personal faith and ministry over time. Let me give you a picture of how this works. When I was a um, high school senior, I came to the Lord. And I was the president of our youth group, but only because my youth pastor wanted to keep an eye on me. He said I was the most dangerous guy in the youth group, so he just put me in a spot where I would have to be with him all the time. And so when I went to college, I was a new Christian, but I didn't really understand what Christian life was all about. And I remember meeting this guy named... Hyun, his English name is now Chris, and uh, I I remember he took an interest in me, and, you know, there was a very, very robust small group system on our campus. In fact, it was really a student-led church. There was a pastor who was overseeing us, but really it was a church run and led by fellow students, and Chris was one of the leaders, and he invited me to lead a small group with him at a far-flung, remote dormitory where there was really no ministry going on. It was a pretty depressing small group, man. It was like me and Chris and I think the guy whose room we're meeting in. And what I realized over time is Chris didn't really need me to lead a group. I think what he was inviting me into was to grow. And I was really grateful for that experience because there were times when I really felt like giving up and I learned a lot about ministry watching Chris and his commitment, his perseverance. I think it's pretty cool that he's one of the elders at our church now. He's one of the guys who I think God used over the years to shape me into into becoming a pastor. And I remember that when Chris invited me into that act of faith to take the plunge and become a leader, to be outed in the church as somebody who's supposed to live a little differently and supposed to have some authority, it was mainly so I think God would grow me. And over time, I learned from Chris how to take care of people, how to pay attention to what's going on in people's lives. And so I, I really believe that that's the role of spiritual leaders is to help God's people keep growing spiritually. I'm going to be calling the leaders of our church to join me in a recommitment in 2014 to really pursue our own spiritual growth with earnestness, but also to pursue the spiritual growth of the people we lead. 
to be very attentive to what's happening in people's souls and not just what they're doing with their hands and feet so that we have it in our minds that as spiritual leaders, our primary job is to help people connect to God and keep growing spiritually, not simply to become more faithful in the tasks and the work that keep a church running. And here's another thing I see in Paul's writing here is that, the, that real unity, which is something we all seek these days, real unity in the church doesn't come from some kind of like-mindedness or likeness in our lives, it comes from growing together spiritually. What Paul is saying is if you want to see real unity burst forth in a church, you're not going to get it because everybody looks the same or talks the same. The unity we're pursuing in the church is not a cultural unity. It's not a generational unity. It's not an ethnic unity. It's not a geographic unity. It's not a socioeconomic unity. But the truth is those are the, the, the ways that most churches find their community. Oh, we all live in the same suburb. We all live in the city. And so that's why we're bound together. We're of the same generation, the same ethnicity, or the same demographic. Uh, often a church will be very diverse ethnically, but will be exactly the same socioeconomic level. That's not the kind of unity we're after in the church. The real unity, the beauty of Christ's church, is when people are growing in spiritual maturity together. That's what brings relationships together across all kinds of boundaries. Let me give you this challenge. Is there a relationship in your life that really is not where you wish it was? A friendship, maybe a relationship with a family member? I bet you that somewhere in the brokenness and incompleteness of that relationship is a spiritual decline. And whenever you see people begin to rise spiritually, to really grow in their faith and their walk with Christ, what you see as a residual effect very, very often is that their human relationships also start to heal. I think that when we're lost spiritually, when we're on the decline spiritually, it is virtually impossible to bring our best into any other relationship. And that's why you often see friendships or marriages or parent-child relationships just completely decay when people's faith is not growing. But whenever you see a revival of faith and a renewal of spiritual growth, every other relationship seems to benefit from that. And so I want to ask you to pause and reflect with me for a little while. And we're going to think about this area of spiritual growth. What are you paying attention to? What are you monitoring in your life? And I want you to just reflect with me for a little while. Here's an area of attention. What area do you need to grow in spiritually this year? And when I say spiritually, I mean not just religiously. I don't want this to just be, well, I need to learn to pray more. That's a religious resolution. I need to pray more. I I want you to consider what area of spiritual life, aliveness, do you need to grow more in? So, for example, um, rather than saying, I need to pray more, maybe one resolution we can make is, I I actually want to care about what God says to me. Or I want to look forward to talking to God. I don't want prayer to be such a drudgery, and that's what it feels like to me. So one area of spiritual growth is when it comes to prayer, I want to look forward to times of talking to God. Does that make sense to you? So what area of spiritual aliveness or health do you really need to grow in? And then here's here's the part about intention. Will you decide that that's going to be a priority for you in 2014? Stop wishing it would change. Stop thinking someday. But will you make a decision in your heart that in the next year, this is going to be on my radar all the time. It's going to be one of my personal priorities for the next year. I really want to see God change this part of my life. 
And finally, as we are the church of next steps, what is one concrete next step you can commit to in this area of your spiritual growth? So I want to stop talking for a minute or two and just invite you to reflect, chew on this a little bit. You might need to continue this process well after the message is done, but I want to provide a couple initial minutes for you to think through that. Guys in the back, if you could get a little music going for about two minutes, and we'll reflect here, then I'll come back and we'll continue, okay? I think it's a good practice on a regular basis to just pause and think about what's happening to our souls. Um, Anything you don't monitor will decline. And you're not going to grow spiritually unless growing spiritually is a personal priority for us. I guarantee you that the life you have right now is exactly the life you want. It's the life you're pursuing. It's the life you're investing in. And if you value physical health, then your body's probably very healthy. If you value financial health, you probably have a decent balance in your checking account. If you value your professional life, your career is probably on an ascending path. But what about your spiritual life? 
it's not something that's just passively over time going to grow. And if you don't get intentional about it, it will stay exactly where it is and it will start to decline. And so I want to encourage you on a regular basis, pause and think about what's happening to you spiritually. Let me give you a second resolution or a second invitation. Don't worry about it, brother. Sorry. Just, just leave it. Let's minister together. Let's minister together. Let me unpack that a little bit because I want to explain to you what I mean by that. I can testify that I enjoyed graduate school way more than I enjoyed undergrad. How many of you guys went to grad school and undergrad? Was it your experience? Keep your hands up if you like grad school better than undergrad. Okay, so it's probably very typical. You know why I didn't like undergrad? Because it was always pre-everything. Undergrad was about studying and preparing to study some more. It wasn't like I was planning on actually having a life after I graduated from college. I was going to graduate and go to more school and then have a life. So when I got to grad school, there was this real sense in the air of like everything we're learning is not general stuff. It has relevance in the real world that I'm going to live in. I I pursued graduate school in genetic engineering, and from day one, I was in a real lab touching real DNA and doing all this stuff that was part of the career I thought I was going to have. And that was exciting. As soon as a real-world purpose was attached to the process of studying, studying became interesting again for me. And I think there's something to be said about that because I think the way a lot of people pursue spiritual growth is growth just for the sake of getting stronger. But if you don't attach some other purpose to spiritual growth, then we're going to live under the false illusion that what God called us to become as experts, not ministers. I don't believe that there's this huge win in becoming a better Christian, whatever that means. If what we mean by becoming a better Christian is, I know a lot more about what it means to be a good Christian, it's not just about growing in knowledge and conviction. It's about growing in the practice of the Christian life because this faith is not just a set of beliefs. It is a way of walking. There's no such thing as a Christianity that can be reduced to a set of principles and doctrines alone. Christianity has to be practiced for it to be owned. Do you understand that? There is no such thing as a Christianity that is just a belief system. All true Christianity is both believed and lived out. So that what God called us to when he said grow is not just grow up here, but grow in the practice of this faith. Grow in the way that you attach what you're learning to the real fabric of the world you live in. In fact, it says that that the reason God raises up these leaders in our lives is not just to equip us for growth up here, but to prepare us and equip us for works of service. That word service there is actually the Greek word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. It's better translated ministry. Ministry. What Paul is saying is that every Christian is called to be a minister, And the reason God raises up leaders is so that each of us will grow in our personal call to ministry. If you read verses 15 to 16, you catch in there that there's a lot of body imagery, very strong body imagery, where he calls the church the body of Christ. Not the church as in the institution called Harvest Community Church, but really the the, the actual church, the body of all those who follow and believe in Jesus Christ. And he says that we're a body and we belong to Christ who is the head. So think about this. Why does Jesus need a body? What is that about? Why is there such a strong imagery in the New Testament that the church is called the body of Christ? Well, I think that's meant to send us a message that what Jesus wants from us is not just agreement, 
But he wants us to become physical expressions of his presence in the world. He wants us to do what he would do if he were in our place. Um, recently, we drafted our last will and testament. We did it the, the cheap way through legal Zoom. I hope it's legally binding. I hope it's sound. Um, and w- what I said was, uh, I, wanted, I wanted my brother to be the guy who, I think they call it the executor of the will. Um, the guy who speaks for and represents me after I, I'm gone. Okay? And if we should be on the same car together that crashes, then I asked Chris to be the second in line. And here's, here's what that's about. That when I can no longer look after my kids or make decisions about how my funds and my resources that I leave behind are to be dispersed, I want someone I trust who knows me to stand in my place and do for me the things I would do if I could be there. I know that if I died and I'm looking down from heaven, I'd be so frustrated. I'm like, man, I really want... I, I see my family walking down a road. And I, want to, I want to rescue them from that. I want to protect them. I, I, I see my wife with her, her newly found riches after the life insurance claim goes through or tax-free oodles and oodles of cash. And <clears throat> I don't want to see her use it poorly because it's not going to last forever. And so I, I would probably be up there going, oh, I want to guide you so badly. Please don't buy that. Don't do that. Please stop doing that. And, you know, I I trust her, but I would love if I could actually communicate with her, be there physically to help her. And that's why the people I've asked are people who I know would understand my heart and care for the people I care about and do exactly what I would want to do if I could be there because I'm no longer physically there. I really believe that that's the heart of God for his church. That's why he calls us his body is that while Jesus ascended into heaven, he has left behind on this earth all of us. And that the calling of our lives, what we call ministry, is not simply folding chairs and doing the volunteer work of the church. It's being physically in this place, doing the things he would do were he in our place. You know, a couple weeks ago, at the servant celebration, I, I, I announced that this year was a pretty good year for us in terms of volunteerism, We have currently 131 people in active service doing some kind of ministry at our church. That's huge. That's 71% of our average Sunday attendants are engaged in active ministry. Um, 29% are working their way there. But 71%, that's almost double the national average of the amount of people that are actively engaged in serving at the church. That's a good thing, but what that tells me is the volunteer spirit is alive and well at harvest. There are many people who are willing to lend a hand to roll up their sleeves and sweat a little for the work of the church. I celebrate that. I think we all should celebrate that. That's a wonderful thing God has done. Here's the invitation I'm making this morning, that we would go beyond volunteer service which is a good thing, but is not actually the entire work of the church, that we would go beyond volunteer service to personal ministry. I know that many of you are actively engaged in volunteer service. Here's what I want to ask you to consider for next year, is to really accept your call to personal ministry. And and really, when we say personal ministry, what we're talking about is ministering to fellow human beings in Jesus' love and in Jesus' name. People need one another. And there are a lot of people in this world who can't see God, but they will see him clearly through your life. 
There is a way in which God has wired you to be particularly effective when you reach out to other people. For example, some of you are so good at making people laugh. You could take an awkward situation or a really sad day and somehow you can make people smile. That's God's gift. You are like a ray of sunshine or hilarity in the midst of heaviness. And if that's what you found is over and over, you make, you know, you know are you one of those people, you just walk in a room and everyone just starts giggling. <laughs> Why? Because just you, your you-ness, your presence lightens moods. It makes people happy that a person like you exists and it just, and you, you're able to laugh at yourself. If that's your gift, then God wants you to use that in personal ministry because Lord knows there are a lot of people living under a cloud who could use a little laughter, a little lightness in their spirit. Maybe you found that when you encourage somebody, they actually puff up a little bit. When you pay them a compliment, they believe the words you're saying because you have such a sincerity in what you're saying. And I'm not saying you're a good actor. I mean you actually see the good in people, and when you breathe it out, when you speak it, their hearts are deeply encouraged. Maybe that's the way God wired you. Maybe God wired you with the Midas touch. You, you can't counsel people. You can't encourage people. Man, everything you touch turns to money. Maybe that's God's gifting. The way he's wired you is every time you look at anything, it turns to money. And maybe God's going to use you to resource people who are so convicted about something but lack the resources to move forward. And you're going to, you can be an incredible minister by saying, look, I don't know how to do a lot of things, but I have all this money and you have all this vision. Let's get together and party. What is it that God has invested in you which when you rub shoulders with another human being, their life gets richer, more beautiful, more power-filled, more Christ-centered. See, I think we need to move steadily away from rolling up our sleeves and sweating for Jesus and actually really ministering to one another in Jesus' name and in Jesus' power. And I think that's the, that's the invitation I want to extend to each of us. The reason God wants us to be his body so that where we are, we will be doing the things he will be doing among us if he were here. We are his hands and feet. We are his ears, his eyes, his voice. We make God real in this world to other people by allowing him to fill our lives and use us to touch one another. And so I want to invite you into time of reflection. Think about this. Have, have you embraced your call to personal ministry? To move beyond, well, I can't do much but folding chairs, I know that's a good thing. But what if God is saying to you, no, think beyond that because you can do so much more than physical labor. Don't get me wrong. I don't want everybody quitting the trailer team and the setup team. and ah, Forget that. I'm just going to be. Uh, that's all important. We all have to do it. But here's the thing. I love rolling in here at 930. That's when I do get here early and, you know. And I think some of you have been here for two hours, and it's such a good feeling that I don't worry about getting all of this set up. This church has a life of its own apart from me, and that really takes a load off my shoulders to see a small army of people mobilized early every Sunday morning getting all of this set up. But the other weight that I think falls on the shoulders of pastors and spiritual leaders is while the physical labor is all being handled by many partners, sometimes it feels like the spiritual labor is left only to a few. 
that in this community, in this family of faith, there are a lot of people struggling with discouragement, struggling with temptation, struggling with despair, and there's only a few people really wrestling with each other, trying to fight for one another's faith. And I think if we see that number of people grow, the church gets so much healthier. So that's the invitation we're making to you, is to see yourself differently. That you are more than God's manual laborer. God is calling you and he's invested in you so that you can be a minister to others. In our culture, we reserve the word minister for people who become professional clergy, but that's not the way Bible talks about ministers. The ministers of the church are everybody who knows and loves Jesus Christ and in whose life God has poured something that when you pour it out into others, their thirst is quenched, their hearts are filled. And I know that he has given you something that when you touch other people with it, it will enrich their lives. It will make them see and savor Jesus all that much more. And so I want to ask the guys to play a little music, and I want to invite you into another period of reflection personally. How has God wired you to minister to others in a personal way? And think about your past and the ways that God has. Think about the compliments that, you, that people have paid you consistently over the years. Right? Your attention to detail, your ability to make people laugh, all of that. Think about it and consider how God has wired you. And then make a decision. Will you accept God's call to have a personal ministry in 2014? To really join with the spiritual leaders of the church to say, I will care for my fellow person at a spiritual level. I will pay attention to what's happening in the souls and in the hearts of others, and I will touch their lives with what God's poured into me. And think about one concrete next step in this area, which God is leading you to make, something that you can actually practice right away. So why don't we take a few moments and reflect on that, and then I'll come back up in a couple minutes. Yeah. 
Let me give you one last resolution we can make together as a church in 2014. And by the way, the aim of these times of reflection is to just get the process started. I think some of us who are more reflective will need way more than two minutes to think about this area of our lives. And so I want to make a suggestion to you. Um, Would you consider taking a 24-hour personal retreat early in the year? Just get a day off of work. Find a comfortable room somewhere, unplug the TV, silence your phone, and for a 24-hour period, just allow God to lead you in a reflection on your life, the state of your life, what's really happening, where you're going to end up if everything stays the same. And in this period of uninterrupted reflection, ask the Lord to tell you things that might possibly save your life. Ask the Lord to speak to you and give you ears to hear so that you can have a course correction if you need one. Let me give you one last commitment we can make together, and that is let's change together. Let's change together. In the summer of 1993, I lived in Tijuana, Mexico for one month. It's one of the most memorable months of my life, and not always in good ways. It was one of the worst months of my life, and also one of the most memorable. Um, Here's the thing. I, I was a seminary student. This was my internship for missions and evangelism, and I was living on a little base camp on a beach just on the other side of the U.S. border uh, in, in Tijuana, Mexico. And we basically lived in squalor. Okay? And, so, and because I was a seminary student, I wanted to take a, a more like a monastic approach to this. So I brought one change of clothes for a month. Okay? I basically packed everything in a backpack, and I brought a little cash with me, and I said, I'm going to live like the way the monks did. I'm going to see what that's like. And, you know, <laughs> I got there and I found out that the bathing facilities was a bucket of freezing cold water and a, a couple like saloon-style doors to cover your nakedness. And that was it. And people were just walking by. And so I didn't wash myself very often that month. I had one change of clothes, and we were going to some of the dirtiest parts of the town in the outskirts. We were just people were living in mud. And by the end of the first week, my clothes were filthy, but there were no laundry facilities. And I smelled less than fresh. Okay, so over the course of the month, though, here's the amazing thing. I noticed that when you live in those conditions and everybody else is living in those conditions, after a while, the squalor and the filth gets kind of, you get used to it. It's amazing what people can get used to. I really believe that we are the most resilient and adaptable creatures on the planet. And so what I realized was that when everybody else smelled like me, I didn't notice the smell. When everybody else was actually a little dirtier than I was, I didn't notice the dirt. But at the end of the the whole internship, I crossed the border on foot, and I took a trolley to a, a, a hotel just outside of San Diego, and my plan was for 24 hours, I would just sort of re-enter the real world. I would take a nice hot shower and get ready for my flight home. Well, I got into the hotel room, and it was just nice to be in a clean place again. And I was just about to fall back. You know how you do when you get to a hotel room? You're about to take the nasty plunge into that bed. And I caught a whiff of myself. I thought, oh, no, I, I can't contaminate this bed. 
the way I smell and look right now. So I thought I was going to go and take a shower first, but I thought when I get out of the shower, I'm going to have to step back into these clothes. So I walked out of the hotel room, went to the Target nearby, and I bought a cheap change of clothing. I came back to the room, stripped out of my clothes, took a long hot shower. When I came out, what I saw was like my shirt it was on the floor, but it was still in the shape of a person because the dirt and the sweat was caked on. And my shorts and everything was all kind of moist. You know that gross moistness that's not moisture, but it's just... A- anyway, so <laughs> I was so clean, and then I picked up the clothes I'd been living in for a month, and I smelled them, and I felt them, and I, I, I almost puked. I couldn't believe I was living in this stuff for a month. And it was a state of coming back into this cleanliness, of coming out of a hot shower in a clean American hotel room, and it magnified the sense of difference between where I was and where I was at the present and where I was in the past. Now, the reason I'm sharing that story with you is not to say that every part of of where I was is dirty. Here's the thing. The reason I'm sharing the story with you is sometimes you get used to things that you have no business getting used to. And on a regular basis, I think we need to consider that God has declared us to be clean in Jesus Christ and that it has cost him a great deal for us to be able to say, I have been washed as white as snow. In verses 11 to 25, Paul makes an impassioned plea to his friends in Ephesus. Please stop living the way you used to before you met Jesus. Instead, embrace the new life God has made possible through Christ. And in verses 22 to 24, he uses this interesting language of put off your old self and put on the new self. Those are Greek words that speak to the way you would take off and put on clothing. And that's why I share that story with you. He's literally saying there are filthy clothes you used to wear before you knew Jesus, before he made you clean, and you walked around in those filthy clothes all day and never once realized how gross it all is. But when you step out of that world into a new life, the filthiness of those clothes are enhanced, they're magnified, and God invites you, take off those old things. Put on the new clothes, the fresh, clean clothes he's providing for you because there are things in your life that needed to be shed and left behind when you came to Jesus. There are things that have no place in your present life in Christ. Things that are remnants, echoes of an old life when you walked in darkness. Where you were used to the filth and it didn't bother you. The smell was everywhere. Everybody smelled like that. So the truth is you don't care. You don't notice. But now in Christ... He has made you clean, and the things you once lived with are no longer acceptable in this new life. Flashes of anger and rage and temper, greed, materialism, envy, gossip, hating on people just because they have things you wish you had. Murderous desires in your heart, unchecked lusts, Bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, inflexibility. All of these things which were a part of the way we used to live, they have no place in the life we have in Christ. And and the reason I'm, I'm saying this is, I think that for a lot of Christians, what we've done is we found some old clothes lying around and we remember some of the ways that we enjoyed what our life was like when we wore those clothes. 
and we picked them up, and after the initial gag reflex was suppressed, we grew used to the smell again. We started wearing things that needed to be taken off a long time ago. And here's the crazy thing. I think that there's a movement in the church today, in Christianity today, to reconcile that smelly old clothing with the new life in Christ. To say, we don't have to let go of any of these things. That it's possible to have it all. But it's not. There are things that were a part of your life before you knew Jesus that have no part in your life today now that you do know Jesus. And is it possible that some of those things are still being clung to as remnants of a life that is no longer your life? And is it possible that you might be trying to defend hanging on to these things when what Jesus is inviting you into is shed all that filthy old garment. Here's new clothing that's fresh and clean for you. A whole new way of walking through life. Is there something in your life that needed to be put away and left behind a long time ago that has followed you all through your Christian journey? Is it possible that at some point you gave up hope that you'll ever be free of this thing? This thing's tattooed to you. It's there. You're never going to get rid of it. And here's the invitation. Believe that God can help you shed that old clothing and put on the new garment. So I want to give you one last opportunity for personal reflection. Is there a remnant of your old self that you need to take off? You know, I'm not just talking about porn addiction. or it, Maybe that's what it is. Maybe there's something that has followed you in a bad habit, a moral lapse. But I also want you to consider attitudes, personality traits, lifestyle choices, preferences, things that were part of the way you lived when Jesus was not a part of the picture at all. And after you met Christ, these things needed to be put away, but they weren't. Maybe it's a form of entertainment that used to delight you when you walked in darkness, but that really has no place in your life today. So think about it. Is there a remnant of your old self that you need to take off? And will you decide to shed this decisively? Will you say, enough's enough, I will stop defending it, I will stop trying to justify it or reconcile it? Starting this year, I'm asking Jesus to help me shed this old garment once and for all. I'm done with this old smelly thing that has clung to me for so long. And what is one next step concretely you can commit to? So I want to invite you to take another minute or so and just get the process of reflection started, and then I'll come up and wrap up for us. We'll close our service.
Why don't we wrap up? I feel like some of us, if we don't start paying attention to our lives, are going to end up in a place we never wanted to be. The encouragement, the challenge giving to you this morning is this. Will you pay attention to your whole life? Will you acknowledge the things that really matter to you? And will you begin to get intentional about living into those things? You may notice that every one of the points, the the resolutions was, let's do these things together. And here's what I mean. Would you raise your hand if you've ever stood at a wedding before as a groomsman or bridesmaid? So a lot of us. I've, I've, I've been doing this when I, I officiate weddings. Now. I've been bringing the, the groomsmen, the bridesmaids together and reminding them, what do you think it means to stand at a wedding? Do you think it's just a measure of how close you are to the bride or groom? What it really means is we're the people in the inner circle for this couple, and we're going to help them keep their vows for the rest of their life. If I ever see this guy have wandering eyes as his boy, I'm going to be, as one of his groomsmen, I'm going to say, hey, look at your own wife. Stop looking around. I'm going to be the one who helps hold them accountable to the promise they're making. That's what it means to stand with someone. And what Paul says is that we need to speak the truth and love to one another so that we will grow. The reason we say we're going to do these things together is because we don't have the strength to make these changes by ourselves. We need others to help us to speak the truth and love. But in order for that to happen, we've got to give people permission to do that. So here's a suggestion I'm going to make to you. Take the things that you're committing to for next year and share them with someone you trust spiritually and give them permission to say to you, I really take these things seriously. I want to see these things change in my life. Will you hold me accountable? I give you permission to speak the truth into my life whenever I need that speaking. Can you imagine how different your life would be if next year you really committed to pursuing spiritual growth? If you're a student in this room, Your parents have probably brought you here over the years and done their best to raise you up in the faith. But maybe it's always been your mom and dad's faith. Maybe you're actually getting to the point where you realize you can take it or leave it. You're going to leave your parents' house very soon, and you don't have to walk in that faith. Maybe this is the year that God wants you to make it your own personal faith. Not the Christianity to my mom and dad, but mine. Can you imagine how different our church would be if every person accepted a call to personal ministry. And what if we were all given the courage to take off the old garments that no longer belong in our life and take on the clean garments that Jesus Christ is making available? Would you bow with me? Let's just pray together. Lord, we love new beginnings, and fresh starts. They fill us with hope that maybe this time everything will be different. Maybe this time victory will come, change will come. Maybe this will be the year. And that's the hope that we have in our hearts this morning, is that 2014 will be a different and better year than 2013 was. That we will be able to leave behind us the frustrations and the failures of the last year and look ahead to all the ways that you're going to show up in our lives. Make the changes that we were powerless to make on our own. So we've paused this morning to resolve together 
that Lord, we do want to grow spiritually. We want to go beyond physical labor. We want to minister personally. And we want to shed those stubborn garments that were remnants of our old life and take on for ourselves the clean new garments you're providing. Garments you have washed at the expense of your own blood. We want all of these things. And so now we place ourselves at your feet. We put ourselves at your mercy. God, help us to experience a new life in the next year. Give us the victory. We are, our hearts are craving. We can't get there without you, but we know that nothing is impossible for you. And so we pray that 2014 will be a watershed year in our lives, a year we will never forget, a year where you will receive much glory. And we pray these things with hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.